another episode of Chris Reed's Book. Welcome back to another exciting, tantalizing, scintillating? No, not that. <laughs> Just welcome back to another episode. Uh, this would be episode... 18 of the Chris Reads Book Podcast. We are going to try and get through roughly three chapters from my first novel, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars, tonight. Those will be chapter 33, About Chaos's Followers, chapter 34, Death of an Order, and chapter five, 35, Reporting Back, number two. At this point, if you are listening to this podcast and going... What do you mean chapter 33, 34, and 35? Well, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, and that is why you're asking that question, this is a serialized podcast, basically. That is, I am reading all the chapters out of my first novel, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars, in sequence. So chapter one was all the way back at episode one, leading us all the way up to here. Obviously, some of these podcast episodes, I read more than one chapter at a time. And that's because um, they fit. <laughs> Some of the chapters are shorter than others. I am Chris Pullman, and this is my podcast where I read my book to try and get a little more exposure, make it easier to consume. Because I don't know about you, but I find that it's a lot easier to get information while listening to it in podcast form. Stuff like Star Talk Radio with Neil deGrasse Tyson or the TED Radio Hour. Uh, from NPR. Really easy to get some really good information that way. So, hence this podcast. If this is your first time listening to the podcast and you would like those back episodes, you can head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast app and look for Chris Reed's book or Chris Pullman, that's P's and Peter O-H-L-M-A-N, and search for it, and you can find the Chris Reads Book Podcast. If you search by my name, you will find two podcasts out there right now. I have started another one called Whiskey and Mash. I'm doing that one with my mother-in-law, and we are going through all the episodes of the TV show Mash, reviewing them, or watching them, and then reviewing them uh, two at a time on that podcast. It's a pretty decent podcast as of this recording we've done two of those episodes i would encourage you to go over and try those out as well but anyway on our website narclaninc.com that's n-a-r-c-l-a-n-i-n-c.com you can find the raw mp3 files of both this podcast and whiskey and mash and a couple other things while i'm at it uh if you'd like to you can hook up with chris reed's book on facebook and twitter I have those linked off of the webpage. And if you have any questions or comments like, gosh, Chris, this introduction is going on forever and you really need to uh, pare that down for the next time, well, you can send those sorts of comments to chrisreadsbook at narclaninc.com. That will come to me, I will read it, and I will take that into consideration for future shows. In the meantime, thank you for sticking with me through that. I don't script these things, so I just kind of ramble on as the mood strikes me. But at this point, why don't we go ahead and start in with our first chapter of the night, chapter 33, about Chaos's followers. So, what led up to Chaos's governmental takeover? I asked Eric. You, of course, mean the takeover of the government by pro-chaos politicians. Eric replied, that happened after we were forced to leave Earth. So as far as that goes, you know as much about it as I do. I doubt that, Eric. You lived through it despite being here on Mars, I replied. Exactly. We were cut off here as it happened. I only learned about it from history books when they were brought here by the first settlers. From my analysis, it was a coalition war, Eric said. I let that hang there, expecting more. That's not an explanation, Eric, I said. Oh, but it is. 
You're a good student of my period in history. You tell me what happened on Earth after the Coalition War, Eric replied. Okay, I said, closing my eyes and clearing my mind. After the end of the war, there was a movement to strengthen the failing UN in an attempt to, for the first time in human history, have one united Terran government to which all others would be responsible. As I recall, it was a hard compromise. The coalition powers were forced into accepting, as part of their terms of peace, some of the allied nations, especially a conservatively controlled United States of America vehemently opposed such a move. Such a global government would make them once more answerable to a higher authority, something they had not truly been for more than 200 years. But what happened to change their mind? Eric asked. The vos populi. American citizens generally favored equality earthwide something the new Terran government espoused and held dear. So, come the next election cycle, the American government was basically replaced. A new one was voted in that favored, and in fact, voted nearly immediately to ratify the proposed Terran government. A little revolution every now and again is a good thing, Eric said. What happened then? Uh, well, okay. I said, remembering, uh, in the new Terran government, there was the lower house of commons and the upper house of the Senate. International judiciary from the UN simply transferred over. Uh, there was a prime minister, the equivalent of an American president. The first Terran government prime minister was Tian Shen. And what became of prime minister Tian Shen? Eric asked. He was assassinated after a thousand days in office, I replied. Eric closed his eyes before he said, In this time of change, of great innovation, of governmental exercise and experimentation, we seek a new peace. One not born on to the people, but rather of the people. So many recently struggled so hard and gave so much for peace that we must respect it and, in doing so, respect their struggles. At the same time, and with malice toward none, we enter into a new kind of humanhood, new brother and sisterhood encompassing all peoples of all races and all faiths. We do not seek to make one people, but together to be a better assemblage of people. For when all things are taken into consideration, the equations put side by each, we find that we have more in common than not. Among such things, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit the same earth, all breathe the same air, and all care for the future of our children. So let now the word go forth that we together will oppose any foe and pay any price in the defense of peace. Ask not what your new government can do for you, but what you can do for your world. Ask not what your government can do for your country, but rather what together we can do for the betterment of all mankind. For in such time as this, when we see so much pain, so much suffering and destruction left over from war, is when our humanity must show through the most. If we cannot now save the many who are poor, homeless, hopeless, and displaced from the recent conflict, then in no way can we hope to save the few who are rich. Let us, therefore, commit ourselves from this day forward to work together, to suffer joyfully toward a brighter future. It will not be an easy road to travel that we now start upon. Indeed, such a path will test our resolve time and again. Let it only strengthen us. When we encounter hardship, let us accept it gladly. And let such struggle as we undertake together for one another this day win us the right to have peace in our time. Eric opened his eyes then, locking them intently on me. Who said that? First Prime Minister Tian Chen, I responded. It was a pivotal and highly influential piece of rhetoric. It was part of his inaugural address. Very good. But what transpired just after his reign that is so significant? What political event happened to the Terran government between the coalition 
and insurrection wars? Eric asked. I had to think. Many reforms were undertaken in an attempt to rectify holes in the original government. It had been hastily put into place, and, much as had the young United States of America done, strengthened itself with such earlier forms. But Eric's question indicated a singular, grandiose event. The near golpe de estado? I asked. Le petit d'état. Go on, Eric said, inclining his head approvingly. Well, with the whole world suffering the effects of post-war, especially countries surrounding the Mediterranean, supplies and materiel were scarce to begin with. On top of that, the government was focused on rebuilding its own infrastructure first, thinking that was the best way to go on and help its citizenry. But with supplies so scarce to needy people, of which there were many those days, dissent began to emerge and gain popularity. In the Arab-speaking world, this drew close attention due to the recent coalition war, but the dissent brought to a head in the Mediterranean world quickly spread across the net, finding receptive audiences around the globe. Among this crowd, the dissident message took especially strong root. A leader emerged from the group, capitalizing on the global unrest and rebuilding. Moreover, people across the globe that held high positions, both civilian and military, began to take the message to heart. Over the course of only a year or two, such supporters of the dissident cause were able to rally enough support to win seats in the next global elections. Their leader, that man from the United States of America, found his way into being the Speaker of the House of Commons, the dissident movement being the party with the highest membership there. As I recall, the movement had also developed a military arm, forming militias for the stated purpose of defense of the common man. The speaker, Matthew Welsh, I believe, was appointed honorary head of militias worldwide. He had political as well as military power. It naturally worried the Terran government to see this developing, but as they had been brought into existence by a similar democratic process, how could they now deny another the same right to opportunity? The next election cycle, two years later, found the dissident cause gaining ground, nearly taking in the Senate the same power they held in the Commons. The Prime Minister of the time, Jean Patin, who had replaced Tian Shen, then became elected in his own right. He was being pressured by the dissident leaders to replace the current Chancellor, a, a, a position at the top of the government in charge of governmental appointment nominations and he was being pressured to replace him with Welsh, if I remember. Patin stalled, though. Welsh called out the militias worldwide in demonstrations and marches in his favor. He personally went on television many times to promote himself. The recordings are still there. After a few weeks of mounting pressure, Patin invited Welsh to a private meeting, and while we don't know with certainty what was said, Welsh and Patin emerged from the meeting and issued a joint statement that while Patin would not deny Welsh's ascendancy to the chancellorship, Welsh no longer sought such a position, nor did anyone from his party. After that, the movement began to deflate and collapse. Had Welsh been able to gain the chancellorship, he could have put his followers and supporters in seats of power throughout the government. Eric nodded his head. Very well done. I can tell you what Welsh and Patin talked about. No documentation or recordings existed of their meeting that day. How could Eric know? You see, Welsh was still around and influential, especially in the United States as chaos was coming to power prior to the insurrection. As a beachhead and way to get his foot in the door in America, long Atmos stronghold, he recruited Welsh and made him into one of his first nanitics. He was the commander I faced off against at Thermopylae. His death hurt Chaos's base of power among government dissidents, forcing his withdrawal and regrouping after Thermopylae. But I digress. It was an intriguing new piece of the puzzle. Welsh had, according to extant historical records, died in combat, 
He was listed a hero and given a military honor of the highest order. But the records never said how he died. When they met, Welsh and Patin, the Prime Minister began by pointing out the similarities between their current situation and that of pre-World War II Germany. To that point, events were paralleled by the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party. Petin, a Frenchman, shared his grave reservations of rashly giving power to what, at the moment, had appeared a transitory party and movement. Welsh, understanding such implications himself, took the message to heart. Coming to that understanding was what prompted the two men to their joint statement. Patin's part of it recognized the power of the dissident movement, while Welsh has sent the message that they grew too powerful too fast. Patin's assessment proved correct, as the dissident cause slowly lost favor amongst the people due to its increasingly hate-filled message and militarized nature. The Terran government ended up being vindicated in its approach to rebuilding as well, one of the main points against which the dissidents rallied. Once the global infrastructure such as shipping lanes, utilities, and lines of communication were fully restored, relief and rebuilding supplies flowed into destitute regions at an unbelievable pace. Unlike pre-Nazi Germany, the Terran government had weathered the storm without succumbing to it. But, then, how does this illuminate the process by which Chaos's forces have gained such political power? That is the question. Eric fell silent then, staring at me. I thought about it. Eric had already mentioned how Chaos had set in motion plans after the insurrection to create competing political parties for the express purpose of making a single party seem centrist, moderate, and as such appealing to the greatest number of people. And the fact that Welsh had been an anitic was also probative. His political prowess would have been passed on to chaos in their hive mind. The dissident movement served as a model on which chaos built his movement? I asked. Deeper, Eric commented. While Welsh had fallen out of public spotlight, he obviously hadn't faded away completely. And clearly the relationships he had formed during his temporary rise to power would still exist years later. It wasn't a springboard, I said. It was chaos's movement. He co-opted it, using Welsh to remold it to fit his own plans. The subtle political network had already been built. He just picked it up, dusted it off, and began using it again. They weren't two separate movements then, I said. Just one that altered itself to fit the times. It, it even used the same tactics of fear and hate-mongering again to rise from the ashes. Yep. The dissident movement came before the time of Atmo, but we were around. It was in the news almost daily for the better part of a decade. We watched as it rose to power, and then fell from grace. Adam, and so Chaos, therefore knew about it well, and so he used his resources at hand. A continuum formed in my mind, stretching from the time of the Coalition War unbroken to today. Who controls the dissident movement today, I asked. Eric shrugged. Such long-lived movements, such long-lived organizations, tend to rely on ritual and tradition. What position did Welsh hold at the height of his power? The Speaker of the Terran Government's House of Commons. So then, in theory, today's leader of the movement would be the Speaker of the Terran Union's House of Commons. Benoit Smith? I asked. That's him. I don't know how many he directly commands today, but considering the size of the government itself, it must be a large group, Eric replied. It made sense. As much as the government swore in new members on Earth Standard August 7th every year to coincide with the Exile Day, so it made sense for the Speaker of the Commons to lead Chaos's political forces. Do you know for sure it is Smith who leads them? I asked. Eric nodded. How can you know for sure? I asked. I have my sources, James. Remember, 
I've been around long enough to cultivate many useful relationships. Helping a young political neophyte through college 50 years ago can lead to a secret wealth of information coming from the capital today. You'll learn such things too after your first couple centuries, Eric said absentmindedly. Eric, do you know of any other important leaders of Chaos's forces? I asked. Eric waved me off. His mind was going off on another of his tangents. You ever fish when you were young, James? Eric asked, looking out his bay window with a faraway gaze. I knew better by then than to try and redirect his wandering mind. It would be like trying to stave off the ocean with a hand broom. Yes, of a sort. My father had enjoyed fishing with his father back on Earth when he was young. He always said he wasn't much of a fisherman. Always enjoyed the doing more than the catching. That the time spent fishing was the purest time he ever had. It tends to slow life down. To live for the strike of fish on hook. Teaches you a good deal of patience, too, Eric added. I've been waiting almost five hundred years at this spot with my line in the water. Waiting. Occasionally teasing the line. Tensing it to make sure the line hasn't snagged. Now I can feel the nibbles. The lure is right and the fish is hungry. It's almost time to set the hook and reel in my quarry. At times, that knowledge is enough. The moment was gone. Eric lapsed into one of his protracted silences. As I had quickly grown accustomed to during such times, I gathered my thoughts, jotted down some notes, and took both our water glasses into the kitchen for a quick fill-up. As I did so, I could have sworn I heard two people arguing in Eric's living room. Peeking around the corner, I saw only Eric still peering out his bay window at the Martian city and sky. Chapter 20, pardon me, Chapter 34, Death of an Order. The TDF had one last position to clear of insurgent forces. Athens. In a bout of historical irony, Chaos had tied his last stand to the Acropolis Mount, going so far as to put in heavy defenses around the Parthenon. Chaos, vowing to fight to the last man, was well entrenched to do just that. It was a tactic meant to tie the TDF to the visage of conquerors, such as the ancient Persians, rather than the defenders of the civilized world, such as the Athenian Greeks. Fortunately for the TDF, his direct subordinate had a flair for monumental feats of machismo. He unilaterally organized Chaos's remaining staff into a salt force, which he brought out against the TDF. Since Chaos would not surrender, and as the TDF could not simply allow his militant insurgency to continue, the TDF was committed to a final assault as much as was Chaos. The TDF dropships landed on the Acropolis Mountain and were immediately beset by incoming fire. The problem with such a traditional assault was that all the combatants were nanite-capable. Plasma bolt zipped through the air, striking stone, ground, and soldier. The firefight didn't last long, perhaps all of ten minutes. In that time, the TDF forces managed to turn the flank of Chaos's general, forcing him in retreat toward the refuge of ton blocks of granite, the Parthenon. Shots began flying around outside as well as within the structure as the TDF forces pressed their advance. Chaos's general tried several times to push through their lines by sheer firepower. The TDF took casualties, to be sure, some deaths as well, but they held. Toward the end of the battle, one of the TDF's younger soldiers, feeling it his duty to avenge his family that had been killed during the early days of Chaos's terror campaign, threw a high-yield grenade into the Parthenon. It came to rest against an ammo cache. Chaos's general and his troops were killed almost instantly. The Parthenon shook, its topmost pieces having blown skyward and began to fall about the Acropolis Mount. As the rubble and dust settled, a figure first rose to a knee, then to standing. At first it seemed he was silhouetted against the horizon by the dust. All soon realized, though, 
but it was the absence of light around him that was causing him to look thus. Chaos had turned into a being made of pure darkness, via Jessica's abilities amplified beyond imagination. It was a manifestation that robbed him of any outward visage of humanity. He absorbed the light and energy around him, stealing what few nanites were left in the wounded as he walked past. He began a slow march toward the TDF forces, looking first at one arm, then the other. As he came closer, he reached out one arm toward a TDF soldier. The man shook violently, and suddenly his nanites were torn physically from him. They flowed as a cloud toward chaos, seeming to first wrap around, then join with his body. From a non-existent mouth came the loudest, most painfully shrieking and full of loathing hatred, death, and voice any present had ever heard. Onions me not broad your own He had perverted what of Melinda's power he had absorbed. His statements came as if all at once, sending spikes of pain racing through everyone's mind. He reached out again, tearing nanites from two more TDF troopers. The rest opened fire. He kept walking toward them, gaining strength with each shot and each new victim as he absorbed the energy. Every TDF troop was sure they would die. Eric reached out to Melinda, who'd been left in charge at TDF Field HQ some miles away. He tried to share everything that was going on. If they would die, let it be for something. Eyes pass off death. Chaos boomed. Eric could feel those around him refusing to yield, never considering retreat. Chaos's slow death march had led him to stand among the TDF forces. Now he simply reached out and touched first, this one then that, their nanites flowing along his arms and forming a sort of dark fog about him. Calm enveloped Eric even as Chaos approached. And then there was a mighty wind. The remaining TDF troops were thrown to the ground. Chaos stopped in place, his featureless face turned skyward. Wanted your true sweet. Both James and Meng descended from the sky, amid a whipping wind. Their voices in harmony called out, This far, but no further. They moved as one and talked as one. Around them both flowed a haze so bright, not even the sun could compare. They reached out from either side of chaos, their arms seeming to try to surround him. No one may, but we are two. You will fall, and this world will finally be rid of your death, destruction, tyranny, evil, tarnish, they said together. The last word echoed in Eric's head, causing him to blink. In doing so suddenly, he was back at TDF Field HQ, those therein looking as shocked as he felt. Medical, he barked. Get them up here now. Get a sat view on the Parthenon. The main screen showed a battle between light and darkness. Words weren't wasted anymore, only actions were exchanged between the combatants. James and Meng, seeming to grow the brighter, would narrow their arms toward Chaos. Chaos, in turn, reached out, attempting to suck the nanites away from James and Meng. He believed himself too powerful to fall to anyone. James and Meng, however, had just what they needed. With Chaos's forced hive mind, James had found his weak spots. Mind to mind, he shared them with Meng, who reached through the veil of time and space to open white holes, vortices of pure energy and raw matter, and directed those into those weaknesses. Take care of this world, came the thought directly at Eric. Meng and James were trading their lives for humanities. They suddenly spread their arms as wide as they could. Swift winds spun around Chaos as light joined in the fray. The darkness that was Chaos began to leech off him, deforming his outline. A wail of pain flowed through all of the TDF elites, through their common bond. On its heels, though, was a feeling of joy, elation, and victory. Chaos was being ripped asunder, his essence being diluted by the pure light that all at first assumed was merely emanating from James and Meng. Now, though, they saw the truth. 
James and Meng were giving their whole selves to the cause. Their knowledge began to flow into Eric, the power they wielded into Chaos's destruction. The ground beneath the trio joined the wind and the light, disintegrating into dust, into sand, and then nothingness. More and more of the surrounding landscape was vaporized as Chaos became a shape less and less recognizable as a man. In the same time it took the TDF to defeat his troops, Meng and James now defeated Chaos. Around Eric, when the dust literally settled and the deed was clearly done, tears began to flow. As a testament to the violent use of power which had just been exacted, the Acropolis itself now stood as little more than a small hill among the Grecian landscape. Chaos was dead. Meng was dead. James was dead. And suddenly Eric gained understanding. The power that Chaos and James and Meng had drawn on flooded into him. All their memories, their knowledge, their abilities, as well as all those of their slain comrades, flowed into Eric. It overwhelmed him, and he passed out. He awoke two days later. The new Terran government, having survived Chaos's insurgency, went about the business yet again of rebuilding a destroyed people and world. The TDF, meanwhile, took stock of what was left. The last Terran war. The war of noble cause. The war of insurrection had cost Earth over 85% of its military forces, over half a million of its sons and daughters, husbands, wives, fathers, and mothers. When a post-war census was taken, the true toll of Cass's cleansings came into focus. Tens of millions had been killed as a means toward forced recruitment into Chaos's armed forces. Worse than the numbers was the deed done. Chaos had not been interested in anyone outside of the ideal age for troops, those not best suited for enlistment with our forces, as Chaos had phrased it, were eliminated. The TDF found out that the nanites of Chaos's elite were programmed to suppress parts of their brains, specifically the parts responsible for sympathy, empathy, and conscience. His perfect soldiers, his perfect monstrous army, committed the worst atrocities ever seen. They slaughtered entire cities, and for what? Sometimes for as few as four more troops. The world itself seemed to mourn the dead as rainstorms were reported worldwide for days following the Acropolis. In Eric's mind were thousands upon thousands of faces, voices, and warm embraces of people who simply weren't there at the end of the war. He hadn't just gained the memories of Meng and James, but chaos in every elite who ever served under them. He was part of his reprogramming of the nanites, that was meant to increase Chaos's strength. Civilian survivals of the war, understandably, were indignant and mad. They sought reason for their loss. Then attention turned toward the Terran government for answers, and the government went looking for a scapegoat. The TDF soldiers left alive were easy targets, the bulk of the bureaucrats being unwilling to defend them in any way. Those who had suffered and lost, who put their lives on the line every day for those they did not know, were labeled the aggressors. Some people saw them as mirror images of Chaos's forces and so capable of bending once more toward the evil he had brought upon the world. Generally, people became distrustful of the TDF. A movement gained ground, one aimed at removing the TDF eye blights from view. Every TDF soldier knew the insurgency had entered a new phase, one aimed at keeping their organization from using its ability to affect Earth in any way. Though Chaos was dead, his civilian followers kept his plans alive, those fueled by the natural blooming hatred of humanity toward the TDF. Months passed and the anti-TDF movement gained enough strength to bring charges against the TDF leadership. Being next in command, Eric was brought to account. Knowing the TDF as an organization were still too powerful to oppose directly, the government and its courts treated its members as dignitaries, a hostile uncontrollable dignitaries, but dignitaries nonetheless. They made no attempt to hold the members of the TDF. 
though they had no reason to either. The TDF leaders always made their court appearances on time, never begrudging their once-and-again allies in the government for their actions. Courtrooms were always packed to capacity with live feeds going out over the world net. The tribunals were farces, effective nonetheless in spreading hatred. As weeks passed, the future became all too clear. Members of the TDF elite could not be jailed or killed. The Terran government had the technology or capability. The tribunal at Nuremberg, the largest and most widely encompassing of the court cases, came to a close on July 7th, rendering its final verdict at 11 a.m. As a direct result of that ruling, the Terran Prime Minister asked the TDF to leave Earth to forsake what family they still had left. Earth could not force them to leave, but it didn't really need to. Had they stayed, the citizenry of Earth would only have grown angrier, more spiteful, and would have focused their energies on the TDF instead of rebuilding. This the TDF could not allow. Earth had suffered an intense wound and needed time to heal and recover, time it would not have if they stayed. So they decided to peacefully depart. They left some of their kind behind, hiding in secret. It wasn't that hard, actually. With casualty lists, even so many months and years after the war yet being finalized, they simply slipped in a name here or there, gave the person a new identity. Overall, though, the TDF died the day of the final tribunal's ruling. Going off-world, they could no longer recruit, their membership could only decrease. Feeling at the time, though, that Earth was safe, they felt it a worthwhile sacrifice. Chapter 35, Reporting Back to Tim, what's gotten into you? I asked. He'd been acting skittish for the last half hour as I shared some of what Eric had been telling me. Tim bit his upper lip, saying, They came, here, and asked me a few things. The censors. I felt my heart skip a beat, then immediately quicken. What did you tell them? I asked. Tim shook his head. I've dealt with them before, he said introspectively, pulling his mouth down into a frown. I never minded them. Looking up from his desk, part of the job, you know. All us historians understand it's just part of the job. But this time, he said as he furrowed his brow, squinting ever so slightly, it was different. His breathing came sharper, louder. They have me targeted, James. They have me in their sights. What did you tell them? I asked again. I... I told them I had seen proof of Eric Bowman's involvement in our defense. I... I told them about the picture. Intently, I asked. Why? Tim leaned forward as he said, They threatened my kids. Said they weren't sure my home... It's the right place for them. Said they they were sure social services would back them up. That that a seditionist house wasn't a healthy and nurturing environment for raising children. They said all they wanted was something, anything, or else. They've never done that to me before, James. Tim, I understand and appreciate your plight. I began, but think about this for a moment more. You aren't meeting with a dead exile leader of Atmo. Tim's eyes lit up, then immediately went as wide as physically possible. No, he said sharply. Yeah, I replied. When were they here? Two hours ago, Tim replied. His red eye twitched. Did you tell them you were meeting me? I pressed. No, Tim said, shaking his head. His eye twitched again. But as good as the censors are... They wouldn't have needed me to tell them. That was certainly true. Instinctively, I reached for my bag, feeling it. Since I began my, began my sessions with Eric, I had kept the bag with me at all times, going so far as to sleep with it. As the saying goes, just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean they aren't after me. I could feel the edges of the picture and birth certificate in their coveralls, as well as my note tab. 
If they search my place, they won't find anything, I said with relief. That's good news for the cause, Tim replied. But if they catch you with that stuff, home or not, more than likely you're going to disappear. He had a very valid point. More than that, though, they're going to start tracking you if they're disinterested in you. Oh, crap, I said. Sensors followed people and made them and anyone they knew disappear. Eric, I mumbled. They would undoubtedly follow me back to his place. What would happen to him if they found him out? My mind leapt forward, then grasping onto a passing thought like it was a lifeline. Eric's been hiding in plain sight for centuries. His might be the one place I could safely go. Listen to what you're saying, James, Tim exclaimed. You're suggesting that leading these censors to the home of Eric Aaron Pullman would be not only a good idea, but the best one right now. I agree, Tim. It sounds nuts. But where else am I going to go? Your place? Tim opened his mouth, immediately closing it without speaking. I couldn't go home and could go no other place the censors would know of or expect. It's the only option right now. How would you get there without being noticed? Tim asked. I don't know that's possible, I said as I peered out Tim's office window. What do you mean? Check out the government cuts chilling on the lawn, I replied, pointing to a couple on a grassy knoll outside the building. If you had ever interacted with censors, the two would have caught your attention right away. They simply seemed to be relaxing and enjoying each other's company, but, even as it had been true centuries ago, their haircuts gave them away. They just can't help themselves, can I? Can they? I murmured. Spocky and pointed sideburns, shorter cropped hair parted and spiked to either side on the one, longer hair up in a bun on the other. Wow. Missed them, Tim said as he followed my line of sight. His eye twitched again. Those the two who came and said hello earlier, I asked. No, Tim replied. No eye twitch this time. He was telling the truth. Then this is more than just a passive investigation, I commented. Remembering how my one reporter friend had described things to me before he had disappeared. Sensors were on him around the clock, cycling through multiple teams. Always, the men and women had the same hairstyles. Can you drive me, I asked Tim. Yeah, sure, Tim replied. They wouldn't stop us on campus, it's too populated, public. Somewhere private, that's where they'd make me disappear. My mind clicked on again, my head turning toward Tim. If they had already confronted him in person, they meant business. By driving me to Eric's house, he would seal his fate with them. Tell you what, Tim. Let me use the bathroom quick. I'll... I'll be right back. Tim grunted, still staring out the window. As I rose, my mind completed its thought. Tim had readily agreed to take me to Eric's. No hesitation. It would be sealing his fate, his daughter's fate, to do so. Unless he had already made a deal. I gently grabbed my bag and slipped down the hall. The main paths off campus would be watched. The couple outside were evidence enough of that. I was familiar enough with campus, though, that I could use some back routes to hook up with a bus line. As I went, I hoped that Tim would be okay. How had they picked up on what I was doing? Tim? Ahmed? One of my friends from the paper? Who had said something to the wrong person? As Eric had been saying, the government had just about eliminated Atmo from history, but not entirely, not yet. The bus dropped me off two blocks from Eric's house. The entire ride, I did my best to look casual while keeping an eye out for any censored tales. I felt confident none had followed me. As I climbed Eric's steps, I found myself rehearsing my plea to him. Before I could knock, though, the door opened. There stood Eric, door in one hand, as the other gestured inside. The scene was so surreal as to freeze me in place. My mouth stumbled over the words I wanted to say. Eric, I am... I know I'd put you out. That, that is, I know you'd be in a pinch if... 
He rolled his eyes before taking a step toward me and dragging me inside. You're welcome here. Know that first. Second, he said as he released my arm and shoved the door closed. You're safe here. They hadn't yet followed you here and did not manage to this time. He turned and secured the door before going past me into his living room. How did you... You have to ask at this point, he said. Fair enough, I thought. It was not so much doubt that Eric could know details of the spot I was in, as much as the shock that he did. You want to call someone? he asked. He certainly had a read on me. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great, I commented. My mind found itself worried that Tim wasn't safe. But wouldn't the censors trace it, find out that I'm here, and wouldn't that put you in a really bad spot? Eric, standing behind his chair, inhaled and exhaled frustratedly, saying, Your mind's a flutter right now. Remember how I said we built the infrastructure of Mars totally from the ground up? I nodded. Even as systems were upgraded with new technology, we made certain our buried back doors stayed in place. Among those are ways to circumvent, interdict, and misdirect traces. And even if they could trace you to here, they would never find you here. The emphasis and verbal twist Eric put on find confounded me. My mind, regaining some of its journalistic composure, thought of the secretive lab in Eric's sub-basement. If such energy and EM readings were unnoticed, he surely had a shield or a dampening field capable of hiding one person. So as I said, he continued, you're welcome and safe here. Let me get a secure comm line set up in the dining room for you. Meanwhile, you just take a few, drink some water, he said, motioning at the end table next to my chair. And please, collect yourself. As Eric left the room, I crossed around in front of my chair, well, the, the chair I, in which I had always sat, and looked at the end table beside it. There was a glass of water just beginning to perspire. Lifting it and turning it in my hand, I could feel its coolness. Water's fine, trust me, Eric called from his dining room. I glanced over my shoulder, but Eric was out of sight. I slowly lowered myself into my chair and sipped, closing my eyes. I could feel my heart yet pounding, the whole string of events to now still trying to make sense of themselves. The censors had heard about my research project with Eric. They knew of my association with Tim. They must have been monitoring his office and approached him after I last reported back to him. And they found his weak spot, using it to turn him against me. Had I not picked up on that, I could very well have become a desaparecido. For a fleeting second, my, mom, my mind considered the possibility that Eric, with his back door everywhere, had tipped off the censors in order to force me here now. But that would logically also lead the censors to his door, something he would surely want to avoid at all cost. Anyway, it come to be, I was now an of-necessary guest of Eric Pullman. On the plus side, it would give me more of a chance to probe Eric's mind. A hand was on my shoulder, shaking it gently. Calm set up, Eric said. I opened my eyes as he settled himself into his chair. Eric picked up a note tab from his end table and began reading. It was as if I weren't there. After a couple moments of watching him, waiting to see if he would switch his focus back to me, I set my glass down and started to get up. Coaster, Eric said absently. I looked over, realizing I hadn't used the clay coaster. Replacing the glass, I finished rising and walked into the dining room. Eric had set an older note tab on an easel stand, a camera mic on a clip at its top. He had moved one of the end chairs, so the whole setup faced the blank wall opposite his basement stairs, leaving nothing in the setting to identify where I might be. Sonic dampener there if you'd like, he called as I sat down. A small box, no bigger than a pack of mints, sat just beside the easel stand. Picking it up and turning it over in my hand, I recognized it as a unidirectional model. By pointing it in one direction, it would emit counterwaves to cancel any sound traveling along its long axis. 
By setting it toward Eric, I could assure that I said that what I said into the comm link would not reach his ears. Not that I thought it would matter much at this point. On the other hand, if I pointed it out toward the back window, it would block any outside noise coming from the living room or the street beyond. This seemed the more prudent use, as it would add a layer of protection against discovery. Setting it up, I activated it, then punched in the number for Tim's office. The note tab popped up several windows, data cascading from one onto the next. Some of it I recognized. The programs were rerouting and bouncing my call around MarsNet, encoding it at one hub and decoding it elsewhere, and then repeating the process. After a few seconds, the screen showed Tim at his desk, though at a severe angle. His monitor had been turned so that his desk was almost completely hidden from view off-screen. Instead, the camera angle showed mostly Tim in his chair in front of his windows. Jim, buddy! <laughs> Tim chuckled seriously. Had me worried. Thought you had been picked up by those sensors, he added, jerking his thumb off camera to his right. To anyone in the room with him, it would appear he was gesturing outside. But I had played poker with Tim enough to know his tells. They were there. <laughs> Where are you, buddy? He only used buddy that much when he was holding a straight or a flush. He was nervous. I'm someplace safe, Timmy, I replied, using the form of his name I knew he hated. When the enemy's listening, and you know it, speak in code. Some place no one will find me. It was a commentary on the Atmo Exile, one written by Tim, where he had compared the exile to the retreat of monks into mountains where none could find them. I was cloistered and safely hidden. Hey, are you doing okay there, buddy? I reinforced that I understood they were there. Oh, yeah, just fine, he said, nearly leaning back too far in his office chair. You know, just worried about you, like I said. You took off like a shot. Department secretary didn't even catch you leaving. I'd lost them before I left campus then. Yeah, sorry about that, man. Figured it was best. If you don't know where I had gone, they really couldn't do anything to Makia and Rachel. Mika and Raquel were his daughters. Makia and Rachel was one of our code phrases for going deep underground based on two of its current top leaders. Not only had I found a safe place, but one where I could lay low indefinitely. Very true, and for that I'm grateful. Listen, if you need anything until this blows over, just message me. Use my work account, though. My, my home one is acting all squiffy right now. All his accounts were being monitored. It wasn't safe to openly contact him. A warning box popped up on my screen. A trace that had been running had hit the first of several decoy dead ends and was backtracking. Damn hackers, I replied. Well, hey, listen, I should get going. I just wanted to make sure everything was okay by you. Tim's eyes shifted right, then snapped back to the screen. They were telling him to keep me on the line longer so the trace would have more time to work. Hey, he chuckled, no need to cut it short. The note tab related that the trace had hit another decoy dead end. It was adjusting again. Hey, sorry, buddy. I really should go. I purposely looked right, both check in on Eric and for effect. I nodded and said, yeah, yeah, I'll be right there. Tim, look, this guy I met on the metro had an uncle, grew up around LNH. He said he'd tell me a few of his uncle's stories over some drinks. I called you when he stopped at off and uh, went to the loo, but hey, I'll call you again before the tourney starts, all right? We need to settle who's going to take the green jacket this year. Look for me off the 18th, huh? I looked right again, saying, Yeah, yeah, be right there. Yeah, yeah. Gotta go, Timmy. Talk to you soon. I closed the link before he could again protest. A summary screen came up. Eric was suddenly leaning over my shoulder as he deactivated the sonic field. Good thinking with that, he said, tapping its casing with a finger. Let's see what we got from them, he added as he reached in and tapped a few menu commands. As the summary scrolled, another window popped up labeled Backtrace. Mmm, they're getting better. Made it through three full decoys and firewalls. How many did you set? I asked, feeling a trace of nervousness returning.
23, Eric said offhandedly. The second window streamed results. Wow, new Langley. Impressive. They really are focused on you. My eyes widened. The CIA was in on this? At least the Mars Bureau, yeah. And there's their trace program, Eric said, pointing past me at the screen. Multi-adaptive polymorphic AI based on a hexadecimal system. He whistled. Had never seen it run yet. No wonder they breached three levels deep. I don't understand, I said, twisting in the seat. Looking down at me over his glasses, Eric said, It can learn on the fly. It's like a bloodhound, but better. Not only that, in base 16 architecture, it's smaller, too. Smarter and smaller. Quicker to run and less noticeable. If I had the time, I'd love to dissect this thing. Their trace, I asked? Yeah, kind of like a worm in ways. A worm and a Trojan base. Eric said as he flicked the window to scrolling. Code flying off the screen upward. Caught a copy with my defense program. See, by the second decoy dead end, I had it. If it could have made it to the seventh, it wouldn't have gone any further. Not this guy, he said, again flicking the code window. My program would have adapted by then. Could have kept this guy chasing its own tail indefinitely. Must have been a good biohacker, though. A hacker? The CIA uses biohackers, I asked. Sure. Best people to get you into secure systems. Why not use such a tool? Also, cheaper than panning them up in a prison someplace, Eric replied. But there's, for sure, no way they could have traced me here, I asked. Not by a long shot. And your little bit of misinformation will have them going a totally different direction, too. A day's high-speed train right away? Nice touch, Eric added. Martian Sweetgrass, where the PGA Solar Masters was being played, was directly opposite opposite Ma Olympus Mons province, fully halfway around Mars. <laughs> we journalists have our moments, I quipped, feeling a sense of truly relaxed calm coming over me. Tim and his family would be all right. He didn't know anything, and so couldn't be held responsible. And I was safe, too. That you are, Eric said as he straightened. So how about we get to some more of those questions of yours? Seem we have a newly enlarged pool of time for them. And there we go. In order, that was chapter 33, about Chaos's followers, chapter 34, Death of an Order, and chapter 35, Reporting Back to. Looking ahead, I've calculated out about how many... Uh, episodes we have left for the actual body of this book and it's only about seven only about seven more of these podcast episodes after that there are about a hundred pages of appendix appendix material as i've mentioned that i'd like to get through and since i'm reading about 15 pages per uh, podcast episode that'll add you know, roughly seven or eight episodes on top. So we have about 15 weeks left in this book's podcast. Uh, as we're going here, I am starting to edit the next book. So that's the sequel to this one, and it picks up right where this book leaves off. You don't have to have read this one to read the next one, but it'll definitely, especially with that appendix material, give you a good foundation uh, on which to pick up with that one. But that said, uh, I think this was a longer recording session, and the second to last one from the body of this book will probably be as well. I'm not sure how I'm going to break up Chapter 42 Spaceport Sheboygan because that is by far the largest chapter in this book. It is a whopping 26 pages. In comparison, what I read tonight was only a total of like 15. So, and that was three different chapters. Spaceport Sheboygan is just one. But anyway, if you liked this episode, if you like this podcast series, if you like Chris Reed's book, 
the one thing you could do to help me the most would be to share this podcast with a friend, share it with a family member, share it with somebody who you think would enjoy hearing some science fiction. Hook up with me on Facebook, on Twitter. Also, if you have any comments, any questions, anything you would like me to see, go ahead and email me at chrisreadsbook at narclaninc.com. I'll be revamping the website, hopefully over this next weekend, and I'll get some of that information updated. In the meantime, thank you again for coming here week after week, for downloading the podcast and for listening to it. And I will see you next week.